Uh, yeah, I'm ready to go. Welcome back to the FS Jam podcast. Today we have a very special guest. Sorry, I thought it was Lindsay Tanner for a moment. Tan, it happens. Lindsay. It, yeah. it, it, it happens. And Actually, he, in middle school, I people called me Lindsay Tanner sometimes, like my teachers in middle school, you know, because well, they just, another it just seemed right to them. Thing is, whenever we did the register in the UK, you would always do your second name first. So I was Burns Chris, Christopher. Tanner has created loads of open source libraries and I'm excited to dig into them. So you have your own stack. Yeah. Even named after you. Well, you know, I didn't give it that name initially, if it counts at all, but. We actually, we know who gave you that name because he revealed this on our podcast. Actually, Swix was the one who came up with it, right? He did. Yeah. There we go. Good old Sean. Currently in the stack, there's three main packages of React Charts, React Query, and React Tables. You don't have to use all of them, or you could go all the way in and do. Which one's your favorite one out of the three? Ooh, favorite? I mean, favorite for different reasons, right? But React Query is great because it's it's really simple. What like for what it's delivering to you, it's really easy to use. It's probably the most bang for your buck if you use React Query. I would agree. We use React Query in Everfund and swapping it out from Apollo was just mind blowing as Apollo disappeared, React Query came in and the benefits were obvious straight away. We could do a quick comparison of Apollo versus React Query. Would you want to do that, Tanner? I would love to do that. And then I would love to hear more about your experience. That sounds really exciting. But yeah, high level React Query and Apollo are are actually very similar. They're both server state fetching libraries. And the main difference is that Apollo is just built specifically for GraphQL and React Query is built as more of an agnostic layer. So you can use GraphQL if you want, but you can also fetch data however else you want, as long as it returns a promise, which is everything these days. So you could do REST APIs, GraphQL, gRPC, whatever you want. You can even do all of them at the same time in the same application. So that's the biggest difference. The second biggest difference that isn't as big of a deal as people think, at least for most applications, is that Apollo, because it's uh, GraphQL-centric, it has built-in normalization for all of the cache under the hood. And normalization is really cool. If you can do it correctly and make it easy to use, normalization is great. It can save space on your memory. It can keep parts of your app up to date easier uh, without as much work from you. But the trade-offs are definitely there. It basically means you have to use GraphQL in a specific way if you want the normalization to behave correctly. I think a lot of that is bound to like using Apollo's backend as well. Obviously, if you use Apollo on the backend, 
everything just works really great. Of course, you can use Apollo to consume, you know, other GraphQL APIs, but there's going to be small differences there. That is the biggest difference is the normalization. The, there's really no normalization happening in React Query, but the ergonomics of query keys and things that we can talk about later kind of take away a lot of that pain for most people. My benefits with React Query has blown me away from just some of the key functionalities it adds straight away. My favorite one is background refreshing slash window focus refreshing. Oh yeah. So if we're deep into Redwood <laughs> and they use Apollo as default, they have this cool little high order component called a cell and that handles basically all of the branching logic of a hook in the background. But when you swap it out for React Query instead of Apollo, that cell now instantly refreshes on background. It instantly fetches if you've added the experimental features and it's just crazy fast. And then the second thing is the prefetching. The caveat is Apollo could have these things, but I never touched them in Apollo. But for example, when you load a table view of 30 records, whenever the user starts scrolling on our application, we then go, quick, fetch the next one. So then as soon as they click next, it's instantly available because it's already been prefetched with React Query. Mm -hmm. I really do love React Query. That's great to hear. I guess you could say one of the best features of React Query are all of these defaults, you know? Yes. In fact, there's a section in the docs that I, it's a very first section you will hit and it's called important defaults. Like before I even tell you anything about how to write a query, it's like, you must read this because some of the defaults that are the, the I think they're the best features about it can catch you off guard. And you can ask anybody who's used React Query for the very first time, they load it up, they make a query and they're like, sweet, it's up to date. Whoa. It just updated. Well, how, how do, oh, it just updated again. Like what's happening here? And they don't even know that it's doing automatic background refetching. They don't even know that window focusing is a thing or network, you know, network reconnection is triggering any of this stuff. They don't even know about that. And that's why those defaults are important to read. But yeah, it's like designing those defaults to work for the majority use cases. One of the best features like you said. The only thing that caught me out with these defaults is caching time and mm -hmm. stale time. They sound oh, yeah. very familiar. Absolutely. Cache time and stale time. If you were to use like more traditional terms here, you could use like max age, right? Is something that people are more familiar with if they're doing designing regular caching systems. Max age is like this familiar term for those people where it's like, okay, how long does this thing live there in React query? There's, there's more to it than just max age. Right. And that's why we split it up into two terms, stale time and cache time. And if we're talking about the most traditional sense of max age, it's cache time 
and that's how long does the data stick around in my cache in my application. And I think that by default is set to five minutes because if you haven't fetched or if you haven't yeah, used data that you fetched for five minutes, let's get it out of there. Fantastic feature, in my opinion, about React Query, highly underrated. It doesn't matter if you're using like Redux or Apollo or like any other, most other systems, they just hold on to data forever. So if you if your users are in the application for a long time, fetching a lot of different assets, the memory is just going to keep going and going and going because it's just this never ending cache. Some of them have like LRUs where they'll just kind of keep the cache recycling. Some of them don't do it at all. React queries cache time, I think, is a great 90% use case where if you have data in the cache that hasn't been displayed to the user, because if you're displaying data to the user, it's relevant. It should never be, you know, garbage collected. But if you have data that you're not showing to the user and you don't show it to the user for five minutes, then we just, we evict it from the cache. And that's by default. Most people never touch cache time. So if you're listening and you're like, still time cache time, do I need to worry about these things? Cache time, you could probably just be like, meh, whatever. Who cares? Yeah, while we're on the subject of caching, we have talked a little bit in the past about Remix. And I know you're pretty excited about Remix. And Remix yeah. has a lot of stuff going on with with caching. So I'd be kind of curious to get some of your thoughts there, like kind of what it is that you think is exciting about Remix and if you see any sort of like ways that that's going to work with React Query and if that's kind of something that you've even thought about at all. The topic of Remix is really interesting. I haven't like deployed any projects with it yet, but I've just been following it very closely. Remix is intriguing not because of what it's doing in the client. We'll start with that. In the client, you know, you've got single page apps. We're doing React Query. You know, there, there's this concept of like, after you have rendered the app, then you get into this side effect state where you're fetching new data and whatnot. Remix is just completely different because it's kind of a return to, I don't want to say the good old days because PHP definitely did not give me good old days vibes, but it's a return to these the concept that it's okay to run it's okay to run your logic on the server or to and think in kind of a server first way as you're developing yeah. and and it's okay to design it in you know kind of like this i wouldn't say monolith right but yes this very server centric way and the browser becomes way more lightweight so that's kind of the concept around remix is that you're doing a lot of these things like routing and data fetching and site building, you're doing all that from the server perspective. And to be honest, Remix is probably going to do what server components might do in the future, but do it much earlier, is reduce the need for people to use libraries like React Query at all. I hate to say it, but it's true. You know, if you have a site that you just need to fetch data and then display it to the user, and you don't need to like be constantly updating that data all the time, then Remix is going to be great because you can just fetch it all on the server, render it, send it to the user, and that's that. Yeah, you don't even need React Query if, if you're talking about the core Remix experience. It, it'll be similar for like uh, server components in React. If you're fetching the data on the server and then you're showing it to the user, 
at the core of that experience, you won't need React Query to coordinate that fetching. However, there is a caveat to both of those things. And it's if you have data that is updating while your user is on a page, not when they're navigating around or doing anything like that. Like Remix is heavily founded on React Router version six. It's very grounded on like the user navigation action to perform a lot of what it does. And that is fantastic because it makes up a huge majority of what people do on a website or an app. They just navigate around. But for apps that need higher levels of synchronization, I envision a future where you will perform a lot of your SSR with something like Remix. Or even as it is today, like people do a lot of SSR with Next. I like Next and I use Next.js right now because it's free and it's familiar and it's common. So that's what I use. And React Query is easy to use with that. You just have to kind of set up this uh, SSR environment with React Query where you're fetching the data on the server and then rehydrating it back into React Query's cache on the client. There is a future where that exists. It already exists for Next and it probably won't be very different for Remix, to be honest. So if you want to take it to the next level and be updating your data on the client after you've done your server-side work, then React Query is still going to be around for a while. Those are my thoughts. And I, I also get a similar question a lot these days with server components coming out or being talked about, I guess, soon. And Remix being talked about is like, is what's going to happen to React Query? And my opinion on that is that the traditional application that we see nowadays is going to be around for a long time. SPAs aren't going anywhere. Remix is going to have a certain level of buy-in that you know we'll definitely integrate with. And same with server components. They're going to turn the ecosystem upside down. <laughs> yeah, I and definitely don't see the need for data fetching libraries going away anytime soon. I still see exactly. the, the need for that continuing to accelerate. So. Any those questions usually come from people who are afraid of technology changing yet again, you know, and it will change, but it'll just be more eventual. As of today, I think, honestly, I'm biased, of course, but I think the best and easiest data fetching experience today is still just spinning up a React application using your favorite CLI tool and popping in a React query and going to town. SSR. Obviously, React Query has the ability to do it, especially with Next.js. But you have also added a quick tutorial on how to do SSR without Next. Mm -hmm. Why is that interesting is Redwood.js is getting pre-rendering of their own in the next few updates. And my busy brain wonders if they could be combined to pre-fetch like a marketing website in Redwood using React Query. Yeah, that second example, I know the documentation page you're, you're probably looking at, and that second example is very raw. Like it looks like it came from an Express app. Yeah. And it's that way on purpose uh, so that you can see the, the lowest level yeah. APIs that you need to implement it. Theoretically, whether it's Express, Redwood, Next, Remix, yeah, you can. You can implement it into anything. Oh, stale time was another thing that I think we might have oh, yes. glossed over a little bit. Yes. But really so, quick, 
caching time cache time in the background yeah. i yeah just let it do its thing it. normally and stale time though is completely stale different. time is completely different it's like a it's kind of like think of it kind of like a max age but instead of a max age for kicking something out of the cache it's a max age for refetching it from the server it's kind of like how long are you willing to let your data go before you need to fetch it again from the server? And it catches people off guard because stale time out of the box is set to zero. So as soon as you fetch data, it's considered out of date. And this is really aggressive. I know it's really aggressive, but it makes a lot of sense when you're just getting started because you just want things up to date all the time. And usually, the cost of a network request is is not that costly, you know, to just kind of be fetching from the server all the time. If it's bringing down your your system or it's bringing down your client experience, you have bigger problems. You want to optimize where you can. And so I give people the example of like fetching a Pokemon. This is usually an example everybody's familiar with. Hey, let's fetch a Pokemon. Okay. How often do you think that Pokemon data is changing? Probably never, right? Once every year when they add a bunch of new Pokemon. Right. I mean, even but even just for like an individual Pokemon, it's probably like never changing, you know? Yeah. And so I tell people like, if you want, you could set stale time to like infinity on that if you want, because you, you're not worried about that thing that you just fetched changing behind the scenes. Now compare that with something like, uh, like if we were to say like a shared document, between two or three or four users. That's a different level of confidence. You're like, okay, that thing could have changed now or or now, you know, or somebody, somebody could have deleted it or whatever. Like you have no idea when that thing is changing. And so stale time is kind of like, how confident are you in keeping this thing around and displaying it to the user? One second, five seconds, 10 seconds, you know? And it's there for that reason so that, uh, so you can say, you know what, I'm going to fetch this item from the database. It's a shared to-do list. And there's a lot of users on this shared to-do list. So we're going to set the stale time to five seconds. So every five seconds, if the user hovers a page or clicks around or does something, it's not really like a timer. It's not every five seconds we're going to fetch it. That's an interval fetch, which is different. But this is more like, if the user is interacting with the data, every time the stale time is reached, we're going to refetch it from the server. So that's when you're gonna interact with more often. But again, I usually tell people that leaving it as a default is fine, as long as you realize that it's going to be fetching quite a bit from your server. Exactly, and I think it's, as you go, you start thinking about how often is this data going to be fetched? we dynamically fetch our pricing page and obviously mm -hmm. all the pricing. So you think, well, we set it to a day and it doesn't matter if it's the most extreme of 24 hours <laughs> right. before it's reset, you know? Yeah, I have like, uh, I have column definitions for tables and, you know, for data visualization, those types of things that are, they're not so dynamic that they change every day, but they do come from the server. And they don't change often enough that I even have it set to a day. I have it just set to infinity. I'm just like, eh, 
just reload the page and you'll get new column definitions if we ever <laughs> update them, you know. My final question with React Query before we move on to some accounts, the classic, do I need a state manager with React <laughs> Query? I haven't used a global state manager with React Query yet. And I think I sit in the camp where I don't really see the need for one right now. I'm in that camp. I think there's there's varying levels of what you call, like what you would define as a global state manager. It depends on your definition of what that is. If you think that using global context with like a use state at the top of it, if you think that's a global state manager, I think you're wrong. I have a global context with a reducer on it that I use to keep track of what theme my user wants, dark or light. And I use it to keep track of if a certain menu button is expanded or not. Or I use it to keep track of like if a modal is open, if a specific modal is open, you know. Those are, in my opinion, global states to an application, but I don't see why they would ever require something like a global state manager in the term that we know it today. I don't need Redux to manage that. In a lot of these cases, I don't even need something like XState to manage it. I think XState is a great tool for smaller levels of like component logic that need very specialized state and machine management, you know? But at the top level of an application, like in the traditional sense that everybody's like, well, you need Redux. So you better install it and it's going to control everything in your application. That disappeared for me. It disappeared for me the day that I wrote the first internal version of React Query. I was like, wow, I just moved everything over into this server state management hook. It wasn't even called React Query yet. And now all of a sudden, my I looked over at my Redux reducers, my slices in Redux, right? And it's like, what's left here? Some modals? A dark theme mode, you know? It's like, I do not need Redux for this stuff. So I ripped it all out and just put it in like, I think now I put it in like a Jotai or Zustand, one of those kind of lighter weight Redux-y Atom-based libraries. And it just helps, you know, for like, so you're not doing, uh, you're not re-rendering your whole app with a context provider type of a thing. But I haven't used global state since then. 99% of my state is just in React Query. It's coming from the server. I think that's how it is for a lot of apps. In terms of other things that you could use with React Query, we've talked about how it's agnostic to your, your API. So it can do GraphQL, but it can do REST, it can do kind of whatever. I'm not sure how much work you do with GraphQL, if you do any at all, but I'd be curious if you think there's kind of a best practice in terms of do people tend to just kind of use the fetch API to make those requests or bring in something like the GraphQL requests library? I think that's how the, yeah. the Redwood provider is, is doing it. But I'd be curious if you have any thoughts in that area. You reminded me of a great article from Swizek Teller. And I mm -hmm. think it was called All the Reasons You Think You Need GraphQL That React Query Gives You, or something like that, right? And it kind of reminded me of that because if you want to use GraphQL with React Query, you can just use fetch. You just make a post request. It's an HTTP post. 
and you post with your query as like a template string, you know, which is a body to a GraphQL endpoint and it just works. Like people forget how simple things can really be. And if you're not comfortable doing that, then the next step above that is like using something like GraphQL request from the same people that built Urkel. It's from Formidable Labs, I think. I, I'm not sure. But GraphQL request is is a super lightweight wrapper around fetch that's just like, hey, here's- Yeah, GraphQL request is actually from the Prisma people. Prisma, that's it. Okay. Yeah. I was, it was not Formidable yeah, Labs. Yeah, but you're right. So Formidable does Urkel. Yeah, it's there's uh, all these uh, hop right, right, right. around the same kind of companies. There's, there's not Prisma. one of <laughs> Prisma does it and, it, and it's great. You can hook up, you just use GraphQL request and create a new client use that client inside of React queries, fetch functions, and you're golden, right? Sure, you're not getting like this, all this fancy, crazy normalization that you would with something that's full buy-in on React, on uh, GraphQL. Again, trade-offs to discuss there, but- Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with all that. I think that's that's fantastic advice and it, yeah. the same, the exact same kind of sense I've gotten from this phase. Yeah, I think, uh, most people who are used to Apollo or used to Urkel or something like that, they switch to React Query, something like GraphQL request, and 90% of the time they're just it's, they're happy, you know. Unless they're heavily using subscriptions, which we can also talk about, or they're heavily relying on normalization, which, in my opinion, you shouldn't rely on normalization. <laughs> it should just kind of be an optim like an optimistic uh, performance optimization. But yeah, most people are happy. As the stack is, there's the three libraries. We've spoke about React Query, and there's two more. The next one to talk about would be React Table. We use this in um, Everfund as well. And I have good thoughts about this one too. My <laughs> favorite thing that it allows us to do is easily like select rows and then do like an export function built on top of that. It just made that a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, makes a lot of things a lot easier. It's definitely a unique approach. I don't, when did you start using React Table? Did you start using it lesson. in version six? It's less than three months. So we actually talk about the, the history of some of these projects and kind of like how long you've been working on them, how they kind of yeah. fit together. I think some of our listeners will already know that there'll be some sure. others who are kind of care about these for the first time. Yeah. Quick recap on React Query then. Like it's only been around for a little over a year-ish. So explosive, explosive growth. Incredible. <laughs> uh, I wish I could show you the NPM download or GitHub star growth. It's, it's just like, it's crazy to see, you know? I did not expect it to happen, but I mean, I definitely tried, but I did not expect it to happen so quickly. It's only been around for a year and I, don't, I used it internally uh, at Nozzle at my startup for about six months before that. And SWR is another library like React Query, kind of came out around the same time period. React Table is one of my oldest libraries that I'm still maintaining publicly. It's been around for three to four years, maybe, maybe three years. But it was kind of like that first library that I, I wrote where I was like, this is going to save people a lot of time. It's going to save me a lot of time. And the reason I asked you about the version that you started using it on is because as you know React Table today, it's just a hook, right? It's just use table. Well, you know, in a galaxy 
far away, long time ago, there was a, there was a component version, version five and six of React Table. It was not a hook, it was a component. And it would actually render markup and styles and everything for you. Everybody loved it. And it, man, it, it got rid of a lot of headaches that you would normally have with building a table. But while it did all that, that was awesome, it created another huge problem. And that huge problem is markup and styles. It's a problem. It's a problem because every single person has a different way of rendering stuff in React, like building their markup. Think about the way that you render your divs and your, you know, whatever components you have and your layouts, your color scheme. You've got, you know, a thousand different CSS strategies that you can pick from. And it's probably changing every six months anyway. And then you have like these UI elements that are common to a table, the drop downs, the inputs, the filters, the check boxes, right? And it's like, who am I as a library creator to say, this is how those look. Then you start getting into, well, now I got to provide themes. Okay. Now I need to provide, you know, a way for you to edit the class and the style tag for every single one of these elements that I'm creating. Oh, you want to replace the entire element yourself? Well, now I have to offer a way for you to do that. Like once you provide markup to people, they're going to want ways to customize it from end to end on the spectrum and completely get rid of it or replace it. And the amount of API surface area that you have to architect to allow your users to do that is absurd. It is absurd. In a tweet about two years ago, maybe, Kent C. Dodds, a good friend of mine, he, was, he said, here's a competition. Somebody find a component that has the most options, the most props that you can pass to it. And I was like, I know. <laughs> it's React Table. It was in, It's insane. It was like 120 or something props that you could pass to React Table. Crazy amount because of the customization people wanted it. So I underwent this massive change from V6 to V7 and I ripped out all of the UI and it just became a hook. This is also after hooks came out and I was really excited about hooks. So version seven of React Table is just a hook. It doesn't do any markup for you. It has utilities built into it for just helping you. Yeah. For kind of like clarification. So it's a React library, as you're saying, React tables, yep. but how much does it or does it not leverage just like a, the HTML table? Like, how does it relate to that? I wish I could show you, but as a podcast, I'm going to have to tell you. So as a user of React table, your experience would kind of go like this. You'd have a component that you would create called, you know, my table, my special table. And this component is yours. You can do whatever you want with it. Inside it, you would call React Tables use table hook. So you say use table, and you pass use table a bunch of options. You know, obviously a lot less than it used to be, but still a lot of options. You pass it your data, columns, you can pass it event handlers and you know behavior. So to what extent did you have to rewrite SQL to do this? Oh no no we didn't we didn't write anything having to do with SQL at all. 
but we did have to write data manipulation logic because under the hood, it's it's handling things like sorting, filtering, grouping, row selection. It's handling creating so the underlying yeah. It's creating the underlying data model of rows and cells, and it does all that inside of this use table hook, and then wraps it all up into a table instance object and gives it back to you. And that so table instance, <laughs> that table instance object has so many great utilities on it and all of those utilities they almost map perfectly to just building your own table so from there you say okay let's how do you want to build your table you could use divs you could use table elements in fact you wouldn't even have to use table elements if you wanted you could take you could use react table to just build a data model and then render it into d3 like it's really interesting but for the basic use case, you just say, okay, here's a table, table element. Well, React table in that instance that you got back has a function on it called get table props. If you call this function, it gives you back an object of props that you're supposed to put on your main table element. So you just spread those onto your table element. And then you go down a row and you're like, okay, let's build some headers. And so you say React table dot headers and it has an array of header rows. And you say, okay, let's loop over those and create header rows. If you kind of get the idea, it's using that table instance, the model and the functions that come from that instance, and you're building your own HTML table, but with the utilities of React table. So it's really hard to describe. It's better if you see it. No, it makes perfect sense because I actually had a job interview once where you just had to create like a vanilla table with with React. And so like I get the pain point and I'm gonna have to, to give it a try for sure. Oh yeah. If that was like a take home for a for like a job interview, you could have just been like, use table, here are my columns, here's my data, and then render like a simple HTML table and wire it up to React. Yeah, and, and the constraints were you can't use a library for that exactly because they knew there oh, were already right. solutions out there and they wanted to make sure you actually could do it yourself. And it's like, yeah. I understand that thought process, but at the same time, it's like, if you have a tool that can solve a problem, isn't that what you want? <laughs> yeah. So anybody who has done that, who has said, okay, I'm going to, there was somebody who was tweeting about this just the other day. They're like, React table seems a little heavy handed. I'm just going to build my own. Okay, start getting into filtering logic, into sorting logic, grouping logic, get into all that, like sorting rows by multiple columns, descending, ascending, you know, letting each column define its own interfaces for how to sort and filter and do all that. You get into the data manipulation part of it, and then you realize you have to make all that performant, and you'll quickly come back to React Table because you're going to notice that it's just there's so much thought that goes into it. There's there's so much logic below the water on the iceberg of data tables. It's a difficult problem to solve. How I would describe React Table is almost like headless re React, as there's no JSX related to it, as it's all through hooks. Another example would be React Ira by Adobe or React Hook Forms. These right. libraries, you don't write any JSX. It's all in the form of hooks. And then mm -hmm. you obviously put it in. Where that makes it really useful, our use case is 
you then basically make a generalized component called, you know, table that has React Table wrapped in it. And then you just pass into it what you need. Yep. It can be a Pandora's box though. As you said, yep. there's a lot of functionality. But if you want to know the most simplest one is when a marketing person goes, you got that table and I've seen on another website that you can just tick boxes on the left and then export five rows. Just use React Table. It will yeah. save you. And I love that you mentioned headless. That's exactly what it is. It's it's headless UI. You know, it's it's UI component logic. Bring your own markup. Bring your own styles, right? And at the end of the day, it will save you. It might feel more painful in the first five minutes because you're like, wait, I have to build my own table, <laughs> like elements. I have to do all my own stuff. I have to build my own styles for this table. And it's like, yeah, but once you get over that hurdle and you realize that, oh wait, I can just use whatever component library I want. I can use whatever styles I want. So if you want to use, if you're building say like a, I mean, heaven forbid a material UI app and you're like, I want to use the material UI table styles. You can, you just pop in the material UI markup components and wire React Table up to it. You could do the same thing with Bootstrap or just build your own. So, so what so. kind of styling do you like to do? You kind of danced around. You, you, does not like you're very committal in terms of what styling library you like, but do you have a one that you're interested I, in? I build my like own. I, I like to, that. yeah, I, I like to build my own. Let At least for guess. Nozzle. Styled components, twin.micro. These yeah. are what I use myself. <laughs> I sound like a nut job when I basically say Tailwind in JS, right? Yeah, it's tail, <laughs> Tailwind in JS. It's perfect. It's perfect, but you sound crazy. It's T-I-J, T-W-I-J. Let's see. Yeah. Twidge. <laughs> well, we can obviously talk about that in a minute because I do also want to talk about Nozzle. But we need to finish the trifecta with React Charts. I don't use this one personally, so you're going to have to take all the heavyweight. So Ooh, what is React Chris, Charts? I actually have one more thing to talk about with React Table, and it's only going to take a minute. Go on, then. I am writing the latest version of React Table V8. I'm rewriting the entire thing in TypeScript with a typed plugin system. And it's going to be like, it's going to be 10 times better. Just, you know, generally. But that's it. That's all I want to say. I don't say. know if you know this, but Chris likes TypeScript. I know wow. he does. And that's why I want to say it. But exactly. it's one of the hardest things I've ever done because types, like library TypeScript is like 100 oh. times harder than app TypeScript, which I've never oh, yes. even written app TypeScript, to be honest. I just know library TypeScript. So, But it's so exciting yet yeah, so difficult, but I just want everyone to know V8 is going to be full TypeScript. It's going to be crazy awesome. It's going to be a new gold standard for table manipulation library, and it's going to be powering one of my newer projects that I have not, I have not really teased very much yet, but it's going to be called React Table Pro, which is going to be basically, it does everything, including UI everything so it's gonna be fun 
Yeah, if I had to do all that work, I would want to make sure people knew about it as well. I'm sure that took a ton of work to do that. So, so Chris, think about all the work you've done to create that UI, that beautiful UI for React Table. Well, I'm going to handle that too. Well, I would say, how do you get access to it? But it's probably going to be GitHub sponsors first, and I already sponsor you, so maybe I'll right. get early access. Yeah. In fact, if you are I think a bronze tier right now or ten, above. Ten, I think. Ten dollars a month, I think I am. The bronze tier is a hundred. So that so it, that one has the experimental repo access flag. If you're bronze or up, you can technically look at all the experimental React table code right now. That's it is going to be like you you get people to pay you to then find bugs in your new libraries. It's that's brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, they, it's also if they want if you want to have a say in the way that the library is built, then you got to be able to look at it. Yeah, that's so, what you want them to think, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, no, I think that's really cool what you're doing there with that GitHub sponsors and just kind of innovating in that space. I really enjoy seeing people do stuff like that. It's fun. We'll talk. And we, we can talk more about it with Nozzle and that because there's a there's a very unique relationship there uh, that I. It's different for me than it would be for anyone else, but we can talk about that more. Back to React charts. I want to finish the trifecta. Well, the current trifecta. Yeah. Maybe more will come. But React charts. To what I understand of this, it's like a headless chart library, kind of, as well. Mm, this one's not really no. headless. This is like. No, it's not. This is basically. So I worked on Chart.js long time ago. I built version 2.0 with a friend, Everett Timberg. We took it over when it was basically abandoned by its owner, and we we rehabilitated it and built version 2.0. Became a very popular library. It already was. But after we did that and I moved on, I, I moved away from Canvas because I hate the Canvas API for drawing things. I just hate it. It's a lot of math. But then I moved away from that to SVG because of the awesome built-in accessibility that SVG has for pointer devices and clicking and hovering and styles and all that stuff. And I was like, I wish I had Chart.js, but for SVG. And I decided I was going to build it in React. And instead of rewriting all of the same logic I wrote for Chart.js, I decided I was going to use D3. Because why wouldn't you? D3 is amazing. So React Charts is kind of like my personal take on if Chart.js was built in React and the internals were implemented with D3, what would that look like? So it's not something where you kind of build your own. It's, it's actually on the very other far end of the spectrum from headless. It's like one component chart and you pass it a bunch of options. What type? What you know, axes do you want? Where's your data? You tell everything that you want it to show, and it's just kind of one component, and it does it all. And under the hood, it's using D3 to do all the computation for layout and everything. And then it's using React to render instead of D3's uh, select package. And a healthy amount of opinionated design on top of it. So. I actually use Vizx, I think it's called, by Airbnb. Me too. 
Oh, interesting. This is this is a pertinent part of this discussion, so keep going. I didn't actually do any of the charts in my company. I just was like, pick the best chart library to you and we'll go with that. But this was also before we did React Query and React Tables. So obviously we weren't using any of the three. And I don't know if we did the other two first, then we would follow with React Charts. So the true question is, why do you not use your own library? I do use my own library, but it doesn't cover all the use cases. So there's actually a good example uh, on tanstack.com. If you go to tanstack.com, scroll down the page, you're going to see an OSS sponsor section. It's got a lot of little bubbles, people's heads in them from GitHub and whatnot. So that bubble packing algorithm and the API around it, the bubble packing algorithm comes from D3. The API around it is actually VizX. And I didn't want to build that into React charts. That doesn't make sense. That's not a very common chart type to put in there. React charts is designed to just really simple use cases drop in. And it it's so opinionated that I don't even supply a pie chart or a circular chart component because pie charts are the devil, uh, if you didn't know. But they're the most impossible charts to like reason about and read. And when you show them to people, they just get confused or make bad assumptions about their data. So you can't even do a pie chart. It's just like Cartesianal layout uh, charts in you know bars lines. That's very interesting that you're you're making opinionated choices not just about how the library is supposed to work but actually how the data is going to be to be visualized and I think that's probably the right way to go for someone who has that kind of experience. So what like what is your kind of experience with this whole data visualization stuff? Because it sounds like you've done a lot of this kind of like chart work. I'm kind of curious, is this something that you picked up to like client projects or like how, how did you kind of get into like the charting area specifically? Because it's, it's Nozzle. fairly niche. Nozzle yeah. is definitely one of the, the reasons that I'm in it is because we have a lot of data. We have dashboards. We need to display that data to users in a really good way, really easy way. And I'm very like conservative with the way that I think about data visualization. I think that there are really two great ways to show data for like the 90% use case. And that is a table and either a line or a bar chart. And if you, if you have a hard time displaying your data in any of those formats, then you probably need to look at your data again, look at the way that you're designing it and wanting to show it. Obviously that doesn't cover every great use case because it, probably isn't that great to show like geographical data in a bar chart or line chart or in a table, although you can, right? It's obviously not a rule, but to me, it's a guideline that if you can't display it in a good way in the really raw, primitive, you know, data visualization elements, then you probably need to rethink how you're doing it. 
Yeah, and it also gets at just the type of data we want to use these things for is usually like business data and you're like you're comparing costs or things like yeah. that kind of over time. And so it's just like you want to you want a visual way to think about these numbers. And so you don't want to complicate that. You want to just kind of turn the numbers into some visual representation that right. you can like look at and just and just get. So that's why, yeah, I like that idea yeah. if you want to keep it as simple as possible. And that's why when you look at all these fancy chart types that you can get from these charting libraries, like pie charts are notoriously difficult to reason about. Radar charts, I can't under even understand why radar charts exist. Um, also with polar area charts, it's like a lot of these circular charts are just terrible in my opinion. Yeah, it's data visualization people who are getting a little yeah. out of hand. <laughs> Ga gauges, gauges are hard to reason about like when you compare them to just a regular progress bar. You know, you start getting into like nested donut charts what the heck like you're just going to confuse your users at, at the expense of like you're going to be looking cool like it'll look great throw a dark mode on there with a couple of nested donut charts and wow it looks sexy but at the major expense of confusing everybody as to what your data is trying to convey you know so yeah bike shedding talking about react charts a little more like, I don't know if I, if I would say you should use React charts, Chris. It's kind of more like a little bit past experimental stage for me right now. I, I could even envision rewriting React charts internally to just use VizX um, and becoming more of just like a, a drop-in opinionated component library for charts. And then if you need an escape hatch out of it, I would just recommend VizX right there in the React Charts documentation. So you're not missing out on much other than having a really fast and succinct way to declare a chart. You know what I mean? So that's awesome to hear, I guess. No, I've not made bad decisions in my tech stack. You know, the technical debt has been pushed away for another day. <laughs> um, but obviously, so they are the three main packages in the TAN stack. You could say, you know, if it was the MCU, you have your Thor, Iron Man, and Captain America, but there's also smaller libraries in there. Some of them are and are not classed as, I guess, the TAN stack, but which ones are your favorite? Of the smaller ones? Of the smaller um... ones. Uh, let's see. React Virtual is one that it actually needs a spot in the TAN stack. It needs a spot on the site. No, it's it's for virtualization, um, which is, wow, we could talk about virtualization uh, <laughs> for like probably an hour. For virtualizing scrollable elements specifically. So uh, when I hear virtualization, yes. I think VMs. I'm like, you're definitely not talking about VMs right now. Uh, we're talking about like windowing, DOM windowing and virtualizing scrolling type of stuff. So that's what React Virtual is for. It's a fantastic library. You use it. React Virtual is great. That's a fun one. And it's also headless. It's just hooks. So a lot of virtualization libraries like React Window or React Virtualizer. Bless Brian's soul. I love Brian. Um, but I don't like, I like dealing with hooks more than components because I have full control over what's being rendered. 
So React Virtual is a hook. Basically, same concept as React Table. You just call it with some of the information that it needs, which like really all it needs is like, what's the size of your, like how many items are in your virtualizer? Uh, what is the parent element? So you pass a ref to it for the parent element that it's going to be inside. And then you can pass it things like, you know, how to estimate the size of each element. And then it gives you back kind of just like React Table, it gives you back this row, this like virtualizer object. And on that virtualizer object, it has like some styles and all of the virtualized items with, uh, you know, some of their properties, like each item has an index and a size and, and like the start range of where it, it is like in the XY coordinate space. So it, it's really pretty neat. If you just go to the sample, the sample page, or let's see, I can just send you guys a link that you can put into the podcast if you want. But yeah, we'll have we're gonna have very sensitive show notes for this one. Don't yeah. worry, I'm, I'm tracking there's, all these all these links we're talking about. There's a nice little sample section there that can show you what it, what I'm talking about. So React Virtual really is like, really fun. I really like that idea of thinking about like hooks as the the kind of base abstraction instead of components because I think at least like I'm, I'm fairly new to react but i'm, I'm a big history buffs so kind of looking back through like how react is developed like we originally kind of sold this like reusable component dream that i think didn't materialize at all like uh, your component ended up ridiculously highly coupled to like every single thing it yeah. was it was doing so it had you had all your logic in it and you had how your displays like people just made everything their component well, and, and that's and what it was, uh, it's been about is breaking up that logic into ways that are actually reusable because the components weren't reusable, but we could find exactly. the parts that were within it that we could actually factor out. And that's what we're doing with all these hooks now. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. It's components only are were only half the game, right? It's reusable components as a concept. And then you have visual like markup components and logic logic components so that's that it's definitely the other side of the coin and you know i'm so happy to be rid of higher order components and render props and childish function rendering and ugh, it was terrible <laughs> but yeah react virtual subscribes to that methodology heavily uh i also have react form and react form is yet another form library but it's not one that I would actually recommend anybody use. So it's mostly experimental. I use it internally, like I use it in Nozzle and it does an okay job, but it's poorly documented. It's not written in TypeScript. Uh, it has funky quirks to it that only I know about, to be honest. And um, it, has an, it has an API that's very opinionated for my opinions, but not for everybody else's. And, and out of any of these things, it's one that has a lot of really other good options like there's not a ton mm -hmm. of like super yeah. awesome chart and like, table libraries i would much i would much quicker recommend to you like i would say use formic or use uh, react final form or use hook form uh, those three fantastic options and they will get you far much further than react form will so react form has some unique has some unique things about it like i focus on asynchronous debounced validation strategies, which is not something you hear about in other charting or other form libraries. And honestly, and it's not something hear, I- like what, is, like, what is that? Like we like to go, go, go deep here. So I want you to actually define that, that term. Example. 
most form libraries don't even mess around with async validation because it changes everything about the way that you send events up and down in your tree. There's there's a lot of communication between different like nested child components and hooks to parent form hooks when you're in a form library. Eric Rasmussen has React Final Form, which is actually built on Final Form JS. And that's all Final Form is. It's like this awesome abstraction over event emitters and receptors for forms. And that's really a lot of what forms are. When you turn those into asynchronous emitters and receptors, it just really complicates things. Formic is ripping out, to my knowledge, Formic is ripping out the async functionality because of this, because it's just not worth it. So one use case would be like, if you want to handle validation for a username field, you're gonna have various levels of validation. The first one you're going to have is like synchronous. Is there anything written in the text field at all, right? And that you can return immediately, synchronously. The next step is you're going to make sure that it's at least like three characters long, which is also something you could do synchronously inside of your inside of the library. Is it three characters? No, okay, return an error. If it passes those tests, then you might want to put it into a pending state and check server side to see if the username is available, right? So it passes all those tests, they've typed in four characters, and you go, it puts it in a pending state, and now it's asynchronous validation. You're checking the backend to see if username is available and if it's okay. Well, that works great, but then what if the user keeps typing? Are you firing off five or six requests to the backend to check username, you know, to check the username in the, on the backend to see if it's valid? So then you have to start thinking about debouncing. And debouncing that input outside of the form can get a little funky, right? Like you have to listen to that form state outside of your form. You have to debounce the asynchronous effect going out. So that's the use case that's built into React form is that you can synchronously validate and then you can also, and if everything passes fine, you can then asynchronously debounce uh, further validations to the backend and that have it all come back and kind of resolve. It's a huge edge case, probably not a lot of people experience, and the entire library is architected in a special way for that one stupid edge case, which is one of the reasons why it's not the best option out there. So my other library that I have used, I would say my Hawkeye, would be React Range. Is it just, I think it's just Ooh. React Range, is it? React Ranger. <laughs> Ranger, that's it. Yeah. Uh, React Ranger. How many libraries do you have, dude? <laughs> I only have one more after this that I'd really want to talk about, but React Ranger is fun. Again, it's a headless hook. It's a lot of fun to use, but it's built It's built for uh, building range range sliders. So you can do single, single button range sliders. You can do multi button range sliders for, you know, creating range boundaries. 
And this for people who aren't kind of seeing this right now, I'm looking at it, and it's basically like you think of a volume control on on YouTube. That's that's kind of what we're talking about, yeah, right? Like a volume control, or like if you want to say, you know, numbers between twenty and eighty, you could put two sliders on, two buttons on a slider, and we could drag like the minimum and maximum type of a thing. Well, my favorite one is when a company does quantity based pricing, and they go, oh. This is how much it is as the scale goes upwards. So you pull the range value up and down. That's right, actually yep. can be quite complicated to code. Mm -hmm. Yep. And this this is uh, trying to solve that issue. You know, there's there's just a single hook called I think it's just use range. It's no, it's use ranger. So you just say use ranger, you pass it your your values, you know, an on-chain handler, min-max, step size, that type of a thing. And it gives you back, uh, again, just an object with a bunch of helpers on it. So it gives you back the handles object, which is like a, the data model for how many handles you should be displaying. Each of those has prop getters on them. There's a get track props. So, you know, you build your track and then you put the track props on it. It kind of just handles all that for you. It's It's really pretty nice it's one that's easy for me to forget that i have but I, I really do like it it's only got 213 stars i don't market it very much because it's not like a massive use case but it is a lot of fun so what's the final library final library is a really small one and i don't know really anybody that even uses it but it's called swimmer i looked this one up earlier yeah it's uh interesting it is interesting. It's so basically it's like a pooling or throttling utility for asynchronous tasks. And there's a lot of libraries out there that that have similar functionality, like RxJS is one of them, right? That can do a lot of this type of stuff. But I just needed something where like, okay, I have I have, you know, a variable number of asynchronous tasks and I need to either I need to schedule them or like pool them all and say, okay, I got a hundred tasks. I only want you to do five at a time. So say you can only be, say you can only have five requests going to this service at a time. So you can set your concurrency limit to five and it will. So it's a load balancer. It's a load balancer for your front end. Yeah. It's, it's a load balancer for asynchronous functions. Awesome. <laughs> and, and you can do it in two ways. There's like a pool all function where you can just say, okay, here's all of the tasks that I have. Uh, I want you to load balance them all and here's my concurrency limit. And then when it gets done, tell me about it, you know, give me the results of all of those functions. And you can listen to, you can listen to events for uh, tasks as they complete, you know, kind of handle them um, as they complete, or you can just wait until they're all done. And that's kind of like the the pool all function. Then there is a second, there's like a, a lower level pooling utility where you just create a pool. And a pool is just like, like a queue. It's like a task queue where it kind of is just always running and always listening. So you can say, here's a task queue and its concurrency is five. And then from after you've created that pool, you can just like start giving it new requests. So you can be like, okay, add 50. And then a couple seconds later, you can be like, oh, add 100 more, add whatever, you know? And it's going to just keep managing uh, that concurrency and notify you as those get done. Well, 
you've had the uh, TypeScript port waiting in your issues now for three years. I think I finally have the skills to to make this happen. To pay those bills. <laughs> yep. <laughs> to finish it up. Um, so you could say this has been a whistle-stop tour of the TAN stack. It's super interesting, but you dog food all of these libraries. And if you don't know what dog fooding means, it's where you're using it yourself to build and also do other things with them as you do in your startup. So what is Nozzle? Nozzle is six years old, I think. And when we started it, our goal, which is still remains to this day, the same goal is to basically reverse engineer Google search results. <laughs> so I know that's a mouthful, but what that means is that in every single company that's you know worried about marketing out there these days, you're going to have a team of SEOs, like search engine optimizers. These are people who all they care about is just writing content and making that content rank them higher on Google or Twitter or wherever, you know. And part of that marketing team's tool set is something called a rank tracker. So if I was, uh, let's let's use Tanstack as an example. I want to market Tanstack. And so I have like 65 keywords in Google that I care about, 65 phrases. It could be like React Query, React Query Versus, Best Data Fetching Library. Like there's just a bunch of these phrases that when somebody types those phrases into Google, I want my stuff to show up, right? And I wanna be higher than everybody else. So I could take those phrases, put them into Nozzle, and Nozzle will then go and track, uh, it will go and record or harvest all the data from those search engine results, either hourly, daily, monthly, you know, we can do it however often you need, and take all of the data from that search engine result page and turn it into just numbers and measurements and metrics. We take all that data, stuff it into a massive database in Google BigQuery, and then we do a ton of data visualization with it and give you unlimited access to it. So a good example is I'm tracking these 65 keywords for TanStack. I can go into the React Query keyword and I can see who is ranking the highest for that specific keyword. I can see who my competitors are in Google, where they're ranking, why they're ranking high. Maybe it's because they have a video result. Maybe it's because they have a new blog post that pushed them up, you know, five or six ranks or whatever. And, you know, we have metrics and data that not a lot of other rank trackers have. We have like down to the pixel measurement. So like think about when you type something into Google and you're looking down all the results on the page. When you click on one of those results, that single result, we know how many pixels from the top of the screen and the left of the screen that result is. It's very granular. And we do that, you know, we have, we have thousands of terabytes of this data that we just, we gather every day and we visualize and provide back to these companies 
I'm trying to think of some notable companies that use Nozzle. I know there's people in the music industry, maybe one of, you know, it could be Apple, Spotify, or Google. One of those uses us to track, you know, where they're ranking for the top 100 billboard songs when you type them into Google. Certain home, home improvement stores that you might have heard of from the United States use Nozzle to make sure that they're ranking high for when you search, you know, bathroom remodel or something like that. So that's what Nozzle does. And I know that's pretty specific and pretty niche, but it's come with a lot of challenges with obviously managing large amounts of data, administrating that data. So you've got React Query, displaying that data. So you got React Table and React Charts. And so, yeah, it's been the biggest reason for a lot of my open source uh, projects. Could you say that you use Nozzle to gain insight on what next area needs rebuilding in the TAN stack? Yeah, absolutely. In my personal priority list, Nozzle comes first. It's my primary source of income. It's my startup uh, together with my other two co-founders. It's our baby, right? And if Nozzle needs, Nozzle gets. So if for whatever reason tomorrow, you know, I wake up and React form is no longer cutting it for Nozzle, I'm either going to rewrite it or I'm going to ditch it and build something else because I want it to be the best for Nozzle. Same thing with React Query. If, if uh, tomorrow I wake up and all of a sudden React Query is no longer the best solution for Nozzle, uh, you better believe that I'm going to either build that better solution or, or move on, you know. And I think that's one of the things that makes uh, my open source libraries a little different is that I'm not just building them for, you know, open source proliferation. I'm not just building them. I was going to say, you have a, a really interesting model because the way I think about it, you're doing open core inside out. Like open core is usually you have this core uh, that's open source and you build services on top, but you have a core of a service that you're building open source libraries around. So it's it's inverting right. the model entirely. And so the product is what drives the open source instead of the other way around. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's it's really cool. I don't know many other people who are who are doing it. Yeah, that's that's a unique, that's a really good insight uh, as to what I'm doing. And you know, whether it's with nozzle or with something else in the future, that's probably how I'm gonna keep doing things. Um, I'm a firm believer in if you if you root yourself in an industry or in a problem deep enough, you are going to eventually find out how to solve it, how best to solve it. And you're going to want to share that idea with other people. So by rooting myself into the problems of Nozzle, I've discovered the needs of many other SaaS products like Nozzle. And those open source libraries have definitely come from that, uh, from that problem space. You know, we we could sell nozzle someday and and uh, that's probably the best reason to explain why they're different i've i've been asked you know why aren't these open source libraries part of nozzle it's like well because if i leave nozzle the open source libraries they're going to need a maintainer and it's me that's unique mostly because i'm a co-founder and i feel bad um, using my i feel bad using my situation as a cookie cutter 
example for other people to follow because it's a unique position. If I were an employee at a company building open source software, I likely wouldn't be able to own it myself. It would probably be owned by the company. And it's just because I am a co-founder and my other co-founders uh, you know, are okay with it, I own the open source that I build while I'm doing Nozzle. And that's okay, right? And that's another big reason of why I'm able to build all my open source is because I have this awesome startup that is doing well and sustaining me, you know, and, and allowing me to not have to stress about open source to feed my family. You know what I mean? That's that's a big difference is that people who want to do open source full time, they want to build open source so that they can get the most money out of it as possible. I like getting money out of my open source. I like, you know, earning, you know, a side income on it. It keeps me motivated, keeps me uh, honest and wanting to make the libraries better. But I am very, very glad that it is not my primary source of income. Maybe it could be someday. And I'm trying to use that position of like privilege to make the open source career space better. You know what I mean? It's not do or die for me if open source sustains me or not. And that also makes me a great candidate to try out new things, to, you know, take big risks in using GitHub sponsors or to take big risks in building a whole new library that may or may not be the best, you know, library out there. But yeah, I bet there's a lot of people who've been listening to this episode and thinking, I'm so glad there's someone out there thinking about these problems because like, you know, who has time to think about, you know, async debouncing their their forms, you know, not not a lot of people. So I think a lot of people are very thankful that you have found this way to channel all of this work and all this kind of thought into these libraries. Yeah. And I, I'm, I guess, continuing that thought process a little bit is like part these libraries are also part of like my personal brand, you know. My and my personal brand is uh, to me and it should be to everybody. It's it's bigger than your company that you work for. It's bigger than the startup that you that you have, or it, it's bigger than whatever side project you're working on. Your personal brand follows you for everywhere for the rest of your life. And by working on these open source projects and maintaining them and and making them um, as good as I can, that's a testament to my personal brand. So that's another big reason why I do it. As a entrepreneur myself, um, a technology founder of two, what you say really does resonate. And when you're a founder, it puts you in a privileged position to, you could say, stand out more, you know, bring personality to a company. As you say, you know, it's quite easy to look at VizX and think Airbnb built, built that. But how many people in Airbnb really built it? Airbnb didn't build it. They paid people to do it. So yeah. it's a really interesting perspective on how we can keep open source going. Because open source is a marathon at the end of the day. It's not a sprint. <laughs> no. Yeah, and I think you just reminded me of another interesting angle I have on it is that my open source libraries have like allowed me to 
like get to know a lot of people on the internet. They've allowed me to increase my, like my reach and my input for like, you know, my network. Basically, I have I know so many people on Twitter now, so many developers through GitHub, because of my open source work, and that reach is something that like I've been able to put to good use for everything that I do, for my startup for you know, reaching out to companies who love my open source software, who also would probably really need Nozzle, or reaching or finding companies who need very specific uh, help and support for my projects. I'm able to help them out personally and make a little bit of side cash here and there. And, and that's been really fun too. And it's been able to, it also has helped me explore new avenues of, of career path, you know, like, I, I built that course. I built a course for React Query. I can tell you firmly that I do not want to be an educator. I don't want to build courses anymore. <laughs> but I did it. I did it. I built it. Pretty specific it. skill set, yeah. Yeah, and I'm going to let. I'm going to leave that to the other people to do because it's just not something that I particularly enjoy. But it's it allowed me to do that and kind of give it a good run, you know. Closing out here. Why don't you just. If you got anything you want to add, Chris? Then we should probably get his, his um, connects and all that. We're about out of time here. I I obviously have so much that I could talk about, and we share a lot of favorite libraries. But what, as a closing statement, what other libraries do you use in Nozzle? Obviously, Twin. Dot Macro is one of them. What else yeah. is in there? I I love Twin. Dot Macro. It's because I, I love CSS and JS and I love Tailwind, so why not put them together? Oh, some other tools that I use. Let's shout out some more tools. Nobody can live without prettier, so let's just let's just put that in there. Good one. I use Zustand here and there. I think it's fun. It's kind of like Redux, but without using Redux. I have a secret library I built called Use Select, and it's basically like when it's like basically like downshift, but it's built just for hooks. Like, so it's just a hook, but this was before downshift was converted to hooks. So I built kind of like my own downshift, but in hooks. So that one's fun. Um, don't tell anybody about it because poorly documented. Tiny color two is really fun for using for color manipulations. I use, oh, what else do I use? I use React Router is great. I'm actually using React Router version 6, the beta. Also not very documented, but easy enough to figure out. I really like React Router. React Icons is a great icon component library. Uh, I think I'm using Pusher for WebSocket notifications. I use Next. I love Next. Next is great. I even use it. I would use that instead of Create React App, to be honest. In fact, I do. Nozzle yeah, is 100. Nozzle is a yeah. Nozzle is a full SPA. There's no like server side routing, but I still use Next, and I trick it into thinking that it's create React app. <laughs> I'm not afraid to say it, but I use Moment because it's just got some things that uh, haven't been replaced yet. I use Match Sorter, Match Dash Sorter from Kent C. Dodds. Dang, everybody should use Match Sorter. It does what it says. It, it's for matching and sorting text. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, I wish I didn't use Firebase for authentication, but I do. 
because it scales really well for cheap. And I think that's it. We use Stripe. I use Reach for some utility stuff. Like I use Reach's uh, Observe Rect and Window Size components. But that's basically everything that I use in Nozzle. Everything else is homegrown. Wow. Wow. This has been an amazing episode. Thank you so much for coming on. I've been literally looking forward to this for ages and we had to uh, reschedule it as it was on a moving day for me, but I'm so glad we could get to it finally. It's been fun. <laughs> yeah, thanks Tanner. Thanks for all the work you've done and all these amazing libraries. Thanks for coming on and kind of walking, walking us through them. We're definitely really excited for all this stuff and we're incorporating as much of it into our own workflows as we can because we, we see a lot of benefit from these tools. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. Um, that's it. See you guys later. What the heck?